Hello, I'm John Dennis. Today, MPs publish a wide-ranging report into privacy, libel and press standards, including the phone hacking revelations revealed by The Guardian's Nick Davis. Any human being with their brain switched on would look at the story that was told at that time and say, this can't be true. The Culture, Media and Sport Committee calls the reform of the industry watchdog and of the UK's libel laws. We hear from The Guardian's editor Alan Rusbridger. It's a strong report. It endorses everything The Guardian has been saying, sometimes in the teeth of criticism from people who um, didn't want to believe what The Guardian was saying. Also today, why America's Great Lakes face ecological disaster because of the terminator of the fish world, the Asian carp. These fish have actually broken jaws, knocked people unconscious and even caused folks to, uh, to nearly drown. And Lance Price, a former spin doctor for Tony Blair, on the relationship between prime ministers and the media. It was pretty extraordinary. I, I, I thought at the height of the financial crisis that Gordon Brown should go on GMTV and, and, and say that he'd rung Simon Cowell over the weekend to see how Susan Boyle was getting on. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk. First, our top story. A report into press standards has been published by a powerful committee of MPs. It includes the findings of their inquiry into reports in The Guardian of phone hacking by tabloid newspapers. News International executives are accused of collective amnesia when they gave evidence to the Commons Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee. Metropolitan Police Assistant Commissioner John Yates is criticised for saying there was no new evidence. And a report by the Press Complaints Commission into the allegations was described as simplistic, surprising and a failure of self-regulation of the press. The Guardian journalist who broke the story of the phone hacking is Nick Davis. Our media editor Steve Busfield asked him how he found out about it. This story actually comes out of a tiny thing, a court case about one journalist behaving badly. Any human being with their brain switched on would look at the story that was told at that time and say, this can't be true. That This one reporter would do this, that this one private investigator was doing all this off his own bat and that the news of the world didn't know either of them were doing it. Highly unlikely to be true. So I started pecking away at it, and I was actually working on it for more than a year, just picking up little bits and pieces. For example, at one point I spoke to somebody, I was at a social event, and found myself sitting next to somebody very senior from Scotland Yard. I said, what about all that phone hacking? Do you think that there were only eight victims, like we were told in court? And he said, no, thousands. So you pick up a little thing like that, and you think this is well worth looking at. It's an extraordinary story, actually, uh, because it starts off as just one journalist behaving badly and it keeps dragging in other people. So the Press Complaints Commission get dragged in and exposed for failing to investigate. Scotland Yard get dragged in, exposed for failing to investigate. The Conservative leadership is on the edge of being dragged in because the guy who was editor at the time is now David Cameron's right-hand man. It's an extraordinary story, the way it proliferates. And what, and what about uh, about News Corporation and the news of the world and, you know, and the sort of atmosphere and the way that they were behaving uh, as a group, as, a, do, as an Do you mean when the crimes were being committed or when the story came out that we published last Both. month? Okay, well, you, you can see from reading the Select Committee report that there was a serious problem inside the news of the world. And, I mean, I've talked to a lot of people who worked for the news of the world during that era and they all say the same thing, that there was rampant use of private investigators doing all kinds of illegal things, and that this was widely known in the office. It's very hard to conceive of anybody working in that office and not knowing that it was going on. Once we published the story in July, 
that challenges the news of the world and the official version of events, they came out very aggressively saying, oh, the Guardian have lied to the British people. And we hadn't. We were just beginning to tell the truth. At that point, there were a lot of people saying that, you know, that actually there was nothing new in the Guardian's, uh, in the Guardian's evidence. What does the report say about uh, what is new? The report says that what the Guardian was putting in the story was new. Uh, the information that we were disclosing had been in the possession of the police and the Information Commission's office for several years. So in that sense, the information was old, but it had all been hidden. None of it had been in the public domain. So so far as the public was concerned, this was all new stuff. So having given evidence to the committee, how do you feel about the final report? Uh, I feel very relieved that they played straight because there was a danger that they wouldn't. The Press Complaints Commission absolutely failed to play straight. The police didn't do their jobs properly. There was a worry that the Select Committee would come under political pressure and bury the truth again. And to their great credit, they didn't. They've played straight, and I'm very relieved that they did that. What do you think is going to happen uh, from here on in? The story won't go away for, for several different reasons. First of all, the fact that the former editor is now poised to cross the doorstep into Downing Street and become one of the most powerful people in the country means that all of the questions around him will keep being raised until they're finally answered. The other thing is that there is a queue slowly forming of public figures who are suing the news of the world uh, because their voicemail was intercepted and that will keep the thing coming back to court, coming back to court. And the, the risk from the news of the world's point of view is that eventually somebody will sue and will refuse to be bought off and then we'll actually have a court hearing where all the evidence is disclosed. Nick Davis. Well, on privacy, the Whittingdale Committee report recommends that the Press Complaints Commission be able to levy fines or even suspend newspaper publication. It also says that libel laws should be changed to make it more difficult for foreign libel tourists to bring British libel actions. Alan Rusbridger, the editor of The Guardian, gives his reaction to the findings. Well, I think it's a very, it's a strong report. Um, uh, it, it, um, it, it endorses everything the Guardian has been uh, saying, sometimes in the, in the teeth of um, criticism from people who, who um, didn't want to believe what the Guardian was saying. Uh, I think it's right about the PCC. Uh, I think the PCC uh, has to reform. I think the, the weakest areas are on LIBOR reform and costs. It does make some proposals on, on LIBOR reform. But I think really that is such a big subject uh, and so overdue for action that really this is something which probably the next government of whatever hue is going to have to pick up the work that Jack Straw has begun uh, and have some kind of uh, all-enveloping commission to look at that subject of libel and the, and the cost of defending libel actions and... Uh, the, the position that London has now got as the libel capital of the world. We, we have to do something about that. Alan Rusbridger, and there's full coverage today at guardian.co.uk slash media. Also on The Guardian's website... I'm Kate Carter, editor of the Life and Style pages on guardian.co.uk, and coming up on the site today, we have an exclusive video interview with Paul Smith. I think it's so important to just... Uh, be in fashion a hundred percent or pack it in unfortunately so many designers uh, uh, surround themselves with sub subservience and they're in their little ivory towers and uh, and that's um, pretty dangerous 
plus picture galleries from all the latest shows and all the news and gossip from London Fashion Week. Check out all this and more at guardian.co.uk slash life and style. The ecosystem of the Great Lakes, the largest body of fresh water in the world, is being threatened by Asian carp. They escaped from fish farms in the 1970s and they've been working their way up the Mississippi River system, devouring everything in their path ever since. But there is hope. The US Army has built an electronic barrier across a canal that allows chips to pass but deters fish, as Ed Pilkington reports from Chicago. These units are what we call pulsers. They're where the electricity is actually converted from a steady current to pulses and then sent out to the waterway. There you are. There's the sound of Asian carp being uh, irritated and turned back with any luck away from the Great Lakes. Chuck Shea of the Corps of Engineers. Now, you're the project manager here down by the Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal. And this, if I'm right, is the the first and most important barrier that exists to trying to stop Asian carp reaching the Great Lakes. Can you tell me what we're hearing in the background? We're hearing a rather sort of slightly ugly electronic sound. What's that all about? Well, that's simply the hum of our transformers for the electrical system. Okay, so there's an electric current pulsating through this canal that we're standing beside. Now, I'm an Asian carp and I'm swimming my way up the river and I'm looking forward to getting to Lake Michigan and and ruining the lives of all the other native fish species around me. What happens to me when I start hitting this barrier? The electrical barrier is actually a graduated electrical field in the water. As the fish approaches, it gets a larger and larger electrical shock. The fish realize that going forward makes them extremely uncomfortable, so they turn around and go back the way they came without crossing over the entire electrified area. I've got three species of carp in here. There's actually a big head and a silver carp, and there's also a grass carp in here as well. Right, we we uh, finally get to uh, meet some of these carp. Um, Kurt Hettiger, you're a a fish biologist, and we're at the Shedd Aquarium, which is Chicago's world-renowned aquarium. What stands out for you about Asian carp? The first thing about them is... uh, not only their appearance but how much they actually do eat and I, I feed them four or five times a day anywhere up to uh, five to six pounds of food and that's nothing compared to what they could possibly eat in the wild where it's said that uh, a single fish could eat up to 40 percent of its body weight in a day so if there's a hundred pound fish that's 30 to 40 pounds of uh, food and uh, using the Illinois River and the Mississippi River Basin as a model where they've already established themselves it's a, it's a very serious threat where they could uh, potentially do the same thing in rivers, river systems throughout the Great Lakes. Why? What has happened in those rivers, Illinois and the Mississippi, where they're now very well established? What, what's happened there? Uh, what's happened is uh, biologists have found in some areas, of the, especially the Illinois River, that, they, that the big head and silver carp make up 90% of the biomass, which means for every 10 fish, you know, nine of them could be one of these species of fish. So they've really taken over. Correct. They've, they've uh, taken over a lot of areas and, uh, and even some of the commercial fisheries locally. I'm with Joel Brummer, president of the Alliance for the Great Lakes, which is an environmental group. I'm looking outside his window at Michigan Lake. We're right on the edge of it. Uh, Joel, tell us to start with why the Asian carp 
are such a threat to the entire Great Lakes? Well, these fish do two things very well. Uh, they eat and they jump. Uh, they jump out of the water when they're disturbed by a passing boat. We've got one of the largest recreational boating industries in the world here in the Great Lakes states and provinces. Uh, and these fish have actually broken jaws, knocked people unconscious, and even caused folks to uh, to nearly drown in the Mississippi River. Well, they can really jump out at you. They're that big, are they? Uh, they average in the 20 to 30 pound range. If you can imagine uh, cruising down a lake uh, at 15 or 20 knots and getting hit in the stomach or the head with a bowling ball, that's what you can envision uh, with an Asian carp. Ed Pilkington reporting. My name's John Dennis. You're listening to Guardian Daily. Where Power Lies is the new book by Lance Price, number two to Alistair Campbell when Tony Blair was in Downing Street. It's a study of the relationship between prime ministers and the media, going right back to David Lloyd George, who Lance Price says was the first media-conscious prime minister. I spoke to him before excerpts from Andrew Rawnsley's book were published in The Observer and asked him if the growth of the internet and social media meant that prime ministers might one day be able to bypass newspapers and the traditional media altogether. I mean, in their dreams they could, and they, they, <laughs> they try to do that. And of course, you know, they're out on Facebook and Twitter and everywhere else trying, trying, trying to use the social media as much as, as much as they can. But we're still in very, very early days in that. And the truth of the matter is that um, you know, as long as newspapers survive, and let's hope they do survive, the Downing Street Press Office is going to have to have an operation that um, responds to their questions and seeks to um, guide their agenda in a way that's uh, sympathetic to the to the Prime Minister. That's always going to be the case. I think I think part of the problem, of course, now with the um, diversification of the media is that no press office, no matter how well-staffed and no matter how... Um, on the ball it is, can keep, can keep up with it all. It's absolutely impossible. It could barely keep up with 24-hour news on radio and television. It can't keep up with everything that's being said on the, on the blogosphere and on, and on the internet. And, and so maybe that's a good point at which uh, it should stop trying. Uh, and it should recognise that it doesn't have to chase every story, it doesn't have to chase every headline, that it should stand back a bit, that it should intervene when there's a big story going on, but not intervene on every little thing that's that, that's going around. Uh, and prime ministers in particular, I think, and there's there's been a tendency, I mean, uh, Tony Blair was, was, was pretty guilty of this, and, and Gordon Brown has been as well, of kind of confusing what interest the public and the public interest and it was pretty extraordinary I, I, I thought at the height of the financial crisis that Gordon Brown should go on GMTV and, and, and say that he'd rung Simon Cowell over the weekend to see how Susan Boyle was getting on I mean that you know for prime ministers once prime ministers start doing things like that um, the it's no longer something special for the prime minister to say something they're just jostling with everybody else who's got access to the media and probably at a disadvantage as well because whereas most people who go on the media or at least believe most of the time, prime ministers are, are not believed most of the time. Where do you go from there? Because I mean, you actually say that Downing Street, Downing Street over the years has squandered the authority of the prime minister. And I think that's true. Um, uh, and I think it was a slippery slope that they allowed themselves to, to, to find themselves sliding down. Uh, and it got to those ridiculous levels that I've just been describing. Um, and I think... You don't have to go back that far when a prime ministerial interview on a major TV programme or in a, in, a, in a newspaper was an event. It was something of some significance. Now there are so many of them. 
Um, and we were guilty of it when I was in, in, in Downing Street, when we were trying to get Tony Blair into all sorts of other bits of the media. So we had, um, and it's still there, the Strategic Communications Unit, which was supposed to, you know, if we could get an interview with, with Tony Blair in, in, in a sort of fishing magazine or a football magazine, we considered that a triumph because we were reaching people who weren't normally interested in politics and getting our message across. All to the good, but if it goes on to the extent that it has done, so that the presence of the Prime Minister or the appearance of the Prime Minister in interviews or whatever is so commonplace that think, uh, people flick through their newspaper or magazine, whatever it might be, oh yeah, Gordon Brown, yeah, yeah, don't even bother to stop and look at it. I think we've got a problem. Lance Price, and you can listen to a longer version of that interview at guardian.co.uk slash politics. And Where Power Lies, Prime Ministers v the Media by Lance Price is published by Simon and Shuster. Phil Maynard, Tim Maybe, and Andy Duckworth were the producers of today's edition of Guardian Daily. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening.